Uh, let me tell you a true story that relates to our passages today and to our theme today that we're going to be going through. Uh, in, a, in a quiet town in Hinckley, California, there was a dark secret beneath the surface. Um, in a place where there should have been life and where people should have been thriving, instead there was a sinister poisoning of the land happening. It was in 1991, Erin Brockovich uh, was a dyslexic single mother working as a uh, law, a clerk in a law office, and uh, she had no formal legal training, and she stumbled across these obscure and uh, strange medical records, and she started connecting some dots about certain people's medical claims and where they lived. Her story is captured, this is a classic 80s picture, by the way, just to throw back to the 80s if you want some nostalgia. Um, uh, this, her story uh, was depicted in the uh, movie that was released in uh, 2000, uh, The Distant Future 2000, um, uh, by her name, Erin Brockovich. And what she, when, when she came across these, uh, she was doing this uh, pro bono case uh, for a real, some real estate case, and she came across these medical records. Well, it, it prompted her to start investigating. So she drove out to the Mojave Desert and started looking around. She noticed she found green water she saw a frog with two heads. She started talking to the residents nearby, and yes, we're getting close to Halloween, so it's kind of relevant, I guess. Um, she started talking to uh, the residents uh, nearby and found out that people were suffering from nosebleeds, and there was a high percentage of miscarriages and cancers in the area. As she began to dig into all of this, she unraveled uh, an enormous amount of corporate deceit that led her all the way to Pacific Gas and Electric Company, PG&E. She discovered that they had been using toxic chemicals to clean, not just to clean their machinery, but to keep it from corroding. And unknown to the residents, this toxic, these toxic chemicals had leaked into the drinking supply of the town. So the people thought that they were drinking normal, filtered, clean water, but instead they were drinking, it probably didn't look this bad, but they were drinking tainted water. I added some, what did I add here? Engine oil? I don't know what I added to this. Should I drink it? I don't know. Would it be good for me? Take a little drink. Not good. Um, yeah, I'm going to grow two heads. Yeah, next week you'll see me. I'll have 11 fingers or something will be going on. Um, where did I get to here? She, uh, the people of the town were, were suffering from severe illnesses and cancers. And as she began to investigate more and more, she discovered that there had also been a cover-up. That this was, no, this was no accident. This was known to the corporation, and they had concealed it from the public for years. It had been going on since the 1950s. She spent years compiling information, compiling records, trying to investigate this on her own, trying to figure out how to prove this, how to get justice for these people. And it was in 1996, she joined forces with a, a lawyer, Ed, Lau, uh, Ed, Ed Maestri, excuse me, and they brought one of the largest legal, uh, well, they, they took direct legal action against PG&E, and it was one of the largest cases uh, historically of its type. But it was a real David and Goliath situation. It was uh, this single mom up against a massive corporation. Of course, they employed some hotshot lawyers, some elite lawyers, to try to discredit her. Um, they, they, they initially got it into arbitration to try to circumvent justice. Uh, that didn't work. They were trying to intimidate her. They would stalk her. They would uh, make anonymous phone calls to her to intimidate her, to get her to back down. Um, they... Uh, the, the, well, the, the case itself was very complicated, very difficult to prove, to get enough information, enough data together to actually, where a court, where a judge would listen to it and where a jury could be convinced by it. The stress, the pressure, the, the, the tragedy of all of these lives ruined by disease and sickness, and then the, the power of this corporation against her took a toll on Erin Brockovich. What would become of her and what would become of this town and this case? 
going to pause the story there. We'll get back to it at the end. It does relate to our passage, uh, to our passages today we're going to be looking at in the Bible and our theme today. So we're in this series called Being the Church, and uh, this series is all about how to equip us to uh, be mature in our mindset, how to build a mature Christian community, but also have mature practices and habits and how we live and how we interact so that we can build a genuine Christian community. And today we're drilling into this subject matter of being watchful. And our sermon today is titled, Watchful Guardians. Watchful Guardians. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would illuminate your word to us today and that you would help us understand what it means to be those who are watchful as your word tells us to be, that we will be those who have our eyes wide open to see what is happening spiritually around us, to discern, to fight evil, to shine your light, or that you might be glorified. God, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, God, bring them all the way in. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, watchfulness is an important trait for the Christian life, to fight the Christian life, to live the Christian life. Being a watchful person is important, but it's important also for shepherding each other, for taking care of each other. When we're talking about being watchful like a shepherd, that's the analogy, is a shepherd is watching their flock. To, to watch like that is to guard the church against threats and dangers. Shepherds, those who are appointed shepherds in the church, are told to Keep an eye on themselves and the whole flock. We've got that in Acts chapter 20. This is a key verse we've looked at already previously, but Acts chapter 20, verse 28 says, to the, to the pastors, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, to everyone. But it's not just to those who are appointed in, 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 in key leadership positions. Uh, in Galatians uh, chapter 6, I believe it is, we've got uh, verse 1 here. We've got a few examples here. The Apostle Paul instructs people who are spiritual to address and restore anyone caught in sin. Uh, in Romans 16, 17, it says, Paul tells all Christians, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions. And in Matthew 18, Jesus says to resolve conflicts between you before getting others or leaders involved. So in, all the, in these three examples here, we actually have a broader expectation on all of the sheep of the fold, all of the sheep of the flock to be those who are watchful. These examples are not restricted to people in leadership positions. It's not our titles that matter. It's not like, oh, I've got the title of a shepherd or the title of a leader or I'm in an important role. It's not about that. It's about your mentality. Am I a watchful person? Am I keeping an eye out? Now, there are obviously physical dangers that we need to be aware of and alert to and provide physical protection at times. That's important uh, for everyone, not just uh, any organization. But uh, that's not what we're really talking about here. We're talking about spiritual threats. The two biggest spiritual threats that we're going to look at, firstly is doctrine, is beliefs, what you believe, guarding the truth of the Scripture. The second one is sin, is the temptation to sin. These are the two biggest things. There may be some other things we could look at, but these are the two biggest things we're going to focus on today, that we must guard the sheep pen, guard the church, and protect the church from. Now, uh, why shepherding? Of course, of course, to shepherd each other, we should see if, if there's some false doctrine or uh, sin that anyone's getting caught up in. We, that should be obvious to us as it's happening. But why shepherding is to preemptively see it, is to look ahead and, and to see the danger coming from afar. Because if you think about a sheep pen, if the gate gets left open or if part of the fence is broken or people stack things up next to the fence... Well, a predator can get in. And if a wolf gets in to where the sheep are, where they're supposed to, supposed to be safe, if a wolf gets in, it will cause massive damage very quickly. Extraordinary damage. You get, a, get just one wolf in there, you get multiple sheep dead, sheep running away, sheep in fear. And so wise shepherding is to look ahead in times, so in times of peace in times where you can't see a predator, wise shepherds know, and, and wise sheep know this, well, predators conceal themselves. They're camouflaged. They, they, they sneak up on you. They're prowling around. They, they don't want you to know they're there until the very last second where they're going to pounce and attack. 
And so wise shepherding is, is uh, well, let me put it this way, naive shepherding and naive sheepery. We'll go with it. We'll roll with it. Is to, I don't know where these things come from sometimes, but uh, to, be, to, to be naive about it is to say, well, everything looks fine. Hey, we're great. There's no, no problems here. We're in, we're in paradise. Aren't things going pretty well? Things plain sailing, calm waters. Aren't things well? Well, that, that's, that's naive. The world is full of predators. And you have to build protections. You have to you can't control every outcome. There are some things that are outside of your control, and you have to trust God with those things. But if you're especially in charge of people, in charge of the care of others, I mean, you lock your door at night, right? You lock your door at night. That's, that's the most basic way. You, you, you're guarding your, your own life by, by locking your door at night. So preemptively, beforehand, looking ahead. Now, being watchful like this, looking out for dangers, um, it has to be underscored with charity and clarity, all right, with charity and clarity, because what we don't want to become is we don't want to be, the, be those who are so hypervigilant that we're nitpicking and we're looking at every little thing, well, are you believing exactly the right thing about this, or are you, wait, you, you, are you getting embroiled in some sin over here, what this little thing you said, what about, okay, we can't, we don't want to create some toxic judgmental culture we're always looking out for, like, we're trying to catch each other out in different things. That's obviously really unhealthy. We don't want to go down that path. We want a culture of grace. But in, in being that way, we can't ignore that these are real dangers and that Christians face these dangers. And so it's how we do it, how we do it that matters. Scripture tells us, uh, it does talk about being watchful, but also ties together being watchful with the idea of staying awake. So I don't know about you, but um, are there certain, certain movies you watch that maybe you, you're more tempted to doze off in? Anyone struggle with this these days? I never used to fall asleep in movies. I don't know. What, what age was I? What age did it start hitting me? Started falling asleep in certain movies. If I really want to watch it, I can stay awake. Uh, but what I've discovered is um, if I'm drowsing off, if I'm getting, getting, you know, the head's starting to nod and the eyes are getting heavy, uh, simple strategy. I always forget how effective it is, but you just you just stand up and you just you lean against a wall or you sit on the, the edge of the couch. If I get my body going, I stand up, move around. I, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm fully awake now. I, oh yeah, I'm not. My eyes aren't heavy anymore. I'm totally tuned in with what you know. There are certain movies that I don't, don't want to miss it. I want to watch it with the whole family. So it's like I'd, other ones I don't care so much about. And I'm like, I'm happy to have a little snooze uh, here <laughs> right now. It uh, just depends on the movie. But it's an effective strategy. Uh, we're told the Apostle Paul points this out in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 4 through 8. Uh, he says, But you are not in darkness, brothers. So he's talking to Christians. For that day to surprise you like a thief. So he's talking about the return of Christ there. And then verse 5. Uh, For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. But let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. We've got to, there's this idea of staying awake. And so if we um, get intoxicated, spiritually speaking, also physically speaking as well, but we're, we, we get drowsy with our allegiance to Jesus, our interest in Jesus, our faith starts to wane, we need to pay attention to that. We need to kind of have almost an internal alarm bell that starts going off that says, you know, I'm, I'm getting weak here. Something's changed in me. I'm getting off track here. And in that drowsy moment when I'm watching that movie, oh, I, in the same way, I, just, I need to stand up. I need to get out of the, the comfortable place I'm in. I need to move myself into a place that's going to keep me awake. Okay, I have a responsibility to do that for myself. But also, in caring for those around me, if you notice a drowsy Christian, this would never happen during a sermon, of course, especially during one of my sermons, it would never happen. I think the only person I've ever actually seen fall asleep in one of my sermons is Merrick. And I can say that because he's not here today. <laughs> he might be watching online, I don't know. But, you know, sometimes you've got to give someone a nudge. If it's an important moment, you don't want them to miss the moment. You've got to give them a nudge and, you know, oh, yeah, I've got to stay awake, right? 
that's, that's the kind of care, that's the kind of heart that we, that we have. We're, we're looking out to keep each other from falling asleep. We're not of the night, we're of the day. We're people of the light, sober-minded. This happened to me, I have an experience of this many years ago, when a church I used to go to, uh, this, this woman in the church approached me, uh, and she was very wise and very careful about how she put this, and, but she was challenging me. I had slipped into some bad habits, and I was, my language had gotten bad. I was, it, was, it was, you know, I guess you can maybe say it was, it was, it was I was using some, some mild cuss words, that, uh, basically, and, but freak, more, more and more frequently, and not realizing I was offending a lot of people. You know, when, when you're young and dumb, you think young and dumb things, and you think, ah, what does it matter if I'm going to use some more spicy language, and, you know, it doesn't really matter. Other people do it, and, you know, um, yeah. And you just feel cool, you know, it's like smoking. It's like, yeah, I feel, I know it's dumb, but I feel cool. Uh, it's like, like that, and then... Um, so, hey, if you smoke, you're welcome, but it is, but it is dumb, all right? So, you know, we love, we love you, but you know it's dumb. Everyone knows it's dumb. But, uh, you know, so, so, anyway, so uh, she approached me, and she's like, you know, she's just, and she has some questions for me. She said, you know, do you, uh, is this a good example to, to younger Christians or to, even to, to children, that you, the way you're speaking? You're saying these particular words. Is this a good influence? And I was like, you know, I didn't have a good answer for it. What are you going to say? Yes, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It'd be great to have more of that. Uh, I'd make the world a better place. Um, and then also, but she asked me as well, like, hey, are you, are you saying these words around your parents? And I was like, she had me. She had me. In these two questions, she had me totally trapped. So I was like, well, of course I'm not doing either. You know, of course, but I, yes, I'm stuck now. How do I get out of this? You know, I'm not happy about it. But she was right. And she was gracious with me, but she was clear. It was, it was, it was, she had a lot of charity in it, but also a lot of clarity that like, hey, you're really offending people saying these, 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 these words and... Uh, and so I, I, I took that to heart, and I, I, I came away from that resolved, like, yeah, I, I need to make this area right in my life. And what was so wise about it was that she caught it before it could have gotten any worse, on, on the early stages. And she had my best interest at heart. And she goes, this is a bad example, going back to our sermon from last week about setting a good example. And so uh, praise God for that. You know, somebody who's willing to step out and be a watchful guardian, looking out for the welfare of a fellow uh, brother in Christ. Now, we can get off track by ourselves. We can kind of slip away a little bit or fall into temptation. But uh, in, the, in the Christian world as well, the other thing we have to look out for is you know, those who set a bad example for us, those who are even in leadership positions or, or false teachers who will tell us things and convince us of things that are not true, but they kind of sound true, and we want to believe them, and we get fooled by them. This happened early on in, uh, for, the, for the church, and... One we looked at last week, I think it was last week, we talked about the circumcision party, remember this? Um, I won't get into it again. Uh, but another one was, um, so, so people are tying together these, these false ideas that to really be a Christian, you've got to do these other things. So circumcision was one of them. But another one to give you an example of is diet. So again, these Judaizers were saying, um, hey, look, if you really got to, to be a Christian, well, you've got to eat, eat a certain way. Otherwise, God won't accept you. And you have to follow these dietary laws to, to, really, to know that you're really saved. That's essentially what they were saying. This, this is a distortion of the true message of Jesus, the true message of the gospel, that is based on, on his sacrifice on the cross, his free gift of salvation, works that we could never achieve. You can't add to your salvation. You can't achieve it. It's, you throw yourself on the mercy of God and cry out for his salvation. He gives it. You receive it. That's, and so anything that you add to it, whether it's circumcision, whether it's diet, whatever it is, man, that's a distortion. That's getting away from the truth, the core message of the gospel of Jesus. And so today in our age, we also have this problem. We have false teachers who are very convincing. We have some false messages. Let's go through a few of these real quick. We've got, maybe you've heard of the prosperity gospel. The more, each time I think about this, it's so, it seems so obvious to me, but it's not obvious to everybody. You know, we're sheep, we're easily led astray by things that sound right, but they're off base. What is the prosperity gospel? Sometimes known as the, the health and wealth gospel. The idea that God just wants to bless you with fancy jewelry and fancy cars, and your, your material prosperity is the sign of God's blessing in your life. And the, or, or the idea that uh, divine healing uh, is guaranteed in this life, that, that every person should be healed, every Christian should be healed in this life. 
that those ideas are twisting, as it's a twisting, a distortion of what the Bible teaches. That's the prosperity gospel. What about the social gospel? This is another one, another popular one. Of the three I'm going to mention, this is probably the one that us in our context in our city we're probably most vulnerable to is the social gospel. This is the idea that while we elevate the marginalized really above and beyond the message of Jesus and our ministry becomes more about political activism than anything else. That's the social gospel. Then another one we could mention is, I'm not sure the exact word for this, but like a, a, the cultural gospel, you could call it, where you have a veneer of, of godliness, a veneer of Christianity, but essentially people want to cover the Bible in stars and stripes rather than the other way around. And so with all of these three things, there's some truth in each one of them. God does bless us in material ways. God's, God does divinely heal people. That's true. We wanna, and it's, it's not wrong to seek those things or to pray for those things. That's great. God encourages us to do that. But to say that, what if you give $100, God gives you $1,000, or that you should be, you know, that there isn't purpose sometimes in suffering. To, to ignore all that is to ignore Scripture or the social gospel. Well, we should care for the poor and the needy. There are political issues that are issues of good and evil that we should be vocal about and care about, of course. Or the, the cultural gospel that, actually, you know, it's, it's not a bad thing to have, like, a unified identity in your nation that you appreciate and that ties you together with people. There's nothing wrong with that, but taking it to, you know, where it's like that's the ultimate identity that you have, well, that's, that's a problem now, right? So there's truth in it, but it's, it's distorted. These distortions, these things, there's just a few examples there. There's lots of examples we could give today, lots of false teachers. If you didn't know, somebody like Joel Osteen is a false teacher. Um, directly, I mean, if you listen to Joel Osteen, um, you're going to come away feeling happy and excited and like, wow, he says some really positive things. But unfortunately, he has directly denied things that Jesus has said and things that the Apostle Paul has said. Directly. That puts him in the camp of false teacher. We'll get into it. We'll explain it. These threats, these dangers come from within the church. And the danger is that any one of us are vulnerable to believing them. Even the strongest Christian you know, and this is one of the things that happened uh, through the pandemic, actually, through a lot of the social upheaval that we've had in our country, even in recent years, there have been lots of divisions, divisions in relationships, divisions in families, divisions in churches, because sheep are not very good at finding good sources of food. Sheep, if they're hungry and the, the shepherd isn't keeping a good watch on them or doesn't take them to a good place of food, a sheep will wander off and eat poisonous berries. They can't tell the difference. They don't know. They're like, it's, I'm hungry. It's food. I'm just going to eat it. But a shepherd knows that bush is poisonous. That plant is poisonous. Don't go in that direction. I've got to take you in a good way. And some sheep will just follow each, they'll just follow each other. Well, that sheep's eating over there, so I'll go do that too. And it's toxic. It's dangerous. We get harmed by it. It can happen to, and it's, it's happened. There, there have been people in my life who I was convinced they're solid. They've got it together. They... They know the truth, and yet they started feeding themselves on something poisonous and went off track. You think, oh, God, what's happening? How could, this, how could this happen? The apostle Paul warned the elders at Ephesus about this. So in Acts chapter 20, we'll expand on it. We looked at this verse earlier, but we'll expand on it. So he's telling the pastors there in Ephesus, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. We already looked at that, but he says, Continues, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And in the next verse, it says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men. That's a bit sexist, isn't it? Hang on a second. Will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. That's the idea. Be watchful. Don't fall asleep. Be sober-minded. Be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. So I guess Paul's a crier when he preaches. He's a bit of a crier. He's crying his eyes out, trying to get people to believe the truth. But this is 
This is telling, telling us that the threat comes from within. And overseers, in particular, have to keep guard. You have to, you have to keep guard. People, there, there, there's always somebody trying to you know, hoodwink somebody else. There's always somebody trying to pull the wool over somebody's eyes. There's, there's always people like that in the world. And we can't be naive. There's people like that in churches. Sometimes we're those people. That's why we have to be humble and open and, and, and be willing to repent, be willing to receive correction, be willing to say, I got it wrong. I was wrong about that. What I believed or what I said or what I did, I was wrong. And I'm sorry. It's so that's, that's, that's a Christ, Can you imagine a Christian who can't say those words? That's the most Christian thing to do, is to, is to say, yeah, I, I've got off track. I was eating some poison. It was hurting me. And I led some others astray. I've got to get back to what we were doing before. And this is, but again, this is not just something that overseers or pastors do. This is something for all the sheep to grow in and to mature. And so we're told in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, says we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. That's written to all Christians. The authors of Hebrews are writing this to all Christians. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Do we actually think about the things we're hearing? Do we examine and test the things that we're hearing? Because it only takes a small, a very small thing to get in. And we looked at this last week as well, but it's a little bit of repeat from last week, the idea of a little bit of leaven getting into the lump, a little bit of yeast getting into the lump. I think it's, Jesus says this in Matthew 16, talks about this, about the disciples. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now keep this up. Now this is, so, this is so funny. The disciples, Jesus is telling them, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you've you got to watch out for their leaven. you just got to watch out for it. And the disciples initially are thinking, oh my gosh, the bread that they make is bad? It's going to make me sick and give me a stomachache and be bad for me? Like, oh no, we, we've accidentally eaten their bread before. What are we doing? All right, it's like, okay, we laugh at the disciples because we're like, they're so dumb sometimes, but we are them. We are the disciples. We're so dumb sometimes. Like, oh, it's, it's a metaphor for something. Got it. It's like Dak, Drac, what's his name from? Drax. I messed it up, Drax from Guardians of the Galaxy. Anyway, the leaven is the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and it just takes a tiny bit to get in, it can take over a whole person. It can take over a whole church. It can take over a whole society. One wrong idea, one little contamination can spoil the whole thing. So the Pharisees, one of the things they believe, they believe in this thing called Corban. This is in Mark chapter 7. You can read about this. You ever heard about this before? Corban? You ever read that in the Gospel of Mark before? This is something the Pharisees made up, and they were supposed to uh, in God's law, uh, a Jew was supposed to take care of their uh, parents financially, all right? And, but they came up with this scheme. They found other verses, they were like, that they found a way to get out of this. So they didn't have to pay, they didn't have to give up their own money, which is horrible because you're supposed to take care of your, your relatives. So they came up with this thing called Corbin, where they're like, well, if you pledge your money to the temple, then you don't have to give it to your relatives because you've pledged it to God. It's called Corbin. So you start to get even just an ounce of their teaching in you, and it will spread everywhere. It'll spread everywhere. It's about the, the equivalent to that today is like a Christian saying, I'm going to tithe to myself instead of to ministry. That will be the exact equivalent of that. It's like Pharisee, Pharisaical way of, of viewing generosity. Generosity to self, not to, to others or to God. The Sadducees, this group, the Sadducees are super weird. I don't get them at all. They, they, didn't, believe in the, they don't, didn't believe in the afterlife, didn't believe in what's called the resurrection. So they just thought, hey, you, you came from the dust, and when you die, so they, they, they were Jews. They believed a lot of you know, what we call the Old Testament, but they didn't believe in this. They believed once you die, you just return to the dust. That's it. You're gone. Didn't believe in the afterlife. That, that kind of feels like in the zone to me of, Christians today who kind of deny uh, the supernatural or deny, you know, the power of God in certain ways. That, that, that's the closest I can get to it. Um, so you just get a little bit, you just get a little bit of their teaching, 
man is praised. The other one that, that Jesus talks about is uh, the Herodians. The Herodians. This was, again, again, he specifically says in other verses about the leaven of the Herodians. So they, um, I think it's Mark 9, I think he talks about that. But the Herodians, this is another faction. And in the Christian church today, we have all kind of factions and groups. The Herodians were a political group. And they, they were all about the, the Herodian family. They're all about trying to get this family more power and expand their influence. And this is, this is, the, power, this is the, the, the party to support. It's, this is the party. You've got to support this party. And Man, if you just, get, you just get a little bit of them in you, whether it's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, it doesn't start with a little bit. Well, it starts with a little bit, but it doesn't stay there. It grows and grows and grows and grows until it takes over you, and you're now somebody else who you weren't before, and you're now a giant hypocrite because now you're believing and doing things that have so far gone away from what is in Scripture that can you, can you even call yourself a Christian you, there's got to be a line you get to where you say, well, do I even believe Orthodox Christianity anymore? This is the danger, the leaven of the Pharisees, and it only takes, or the Sadducees or the Herodians, it only takes a little bit to completely transform people. Um, Charles Spurgeon, the prince of, of preachers, famous preacher, he said this. He said, discernment is not a matter of simply telling the difference between right and wrong. Rather, it is telling the difference between right and almost right. We have to grow up out of infancy and into maturity. We have to understand that being fed false teaching, somebody saying, eat these berries, but they're poisonous, isn't something that sometimes happens or could happen or has happened to some other people very far away, but it's something that happens to all Christians in all churches through all periods of history. 2 Peter chapter 2, the Apostle Peter puts it this way. He says, There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master, that's Jesus, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Now, the, the reason you have to secretly bring in a destructive belief into the church is because you have to get it in the back door or the side door or a window or a hole in the roof, or you have to find another way to get it in because at the beginning, nobody's going to let it in the front door. If you try and go in the front door, there, everyone's going to say, no, 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 we're not about that. No, we, we, we got our beliefs. We, we got Jesus. We got the Bible. We, we got it all. We know who we are. So you try and go in the front door, and force it in, people are going to be, it's going to be obvious. And this is the destructive, dangerous power of false belief or temptation to sin, either way, is that it gets smuggled in. And so wise shepherds are looking in the shadows. They're looking where things get concealed. They're looking to, to try to figure out what, what's happening in these private moments or these secret moments or what's happening over here. Because, you know, obviously you've got to guard the gate, right? The gate that's the, the most primary way to, to guard the, the sheep pen, isn't it? Is it locked? Is it closed? Great. But also we've got to look at, are there wolves in sheep's clothing? And in, in verse 2 that we just read, it says that these, these heresies, they're destructive. It can be hard to imagine how sometimes connecting the dots between moving on a little bit piece of theology or moving getting into some kind of sin, how it could lead you all the way to denying the master, denying Jesus. But it happens. I've seen it happen. Maybe you've seen it happen. Maybe you've been in that place. I pray and I hope that people come back from that place. I tell you, once people start going down that pathway, it doesn't always look good for people. Let me give you an example of this. This is a sensitive one. This is a hot topic in our culture. So if you're offended, I love you. I'd love to talk about this more. Let me ask you to be, have a mature mindset and grapple with this. Don't just dismiss it. Grapple with it because there's truth. But I'm going to give you a bitter pill to swallow. But it is actually, uh, it's life because it's from God's word. But our culture, there's so much pressure in our culture against Christians to bend the knee towards issues of identity, sexuality, gender, all these different types of things. And so if a Christian gets to a point where we say, well, now it's just easier to go along to get along, 
and we're going to deny even the words of Jesus. Jesus, for example, defined marriage in Matthew 19. Jesus gives the definition of marriage. It's between one man and one woman. Now, if a Christian says, well, I want to be inclusive and accepting and loving, and maybe that's wrong. Maybe there's a different way. And you have to understand, if you, if you change the definition of it and you say, well, you know, different, it can happen different ways, different models of family life, where does it stop? It will result in polygamy in our culture. You have three people who are married, four people who are married, five people who are married. People who want to marry minors, that will come. People who want to marry animals, that will come. There'll be all kinds of things that, and it starts with, just, well, if I just change this thing here, what's the, the, there's a slippery slope that it comes from. But we're, we're blind to it. And we may not realize it, but if Jesus has given us the, de- the definition of marriage and we change it, we are denying the master. We've already denounced Jesus in switching our views on some of these cultural issues. Now, I know that's a heavy, sensitive topic. Listen, we love everybody. Everybody's welcome to come in. We're not going to treat anyone any differently. We're big on grace, big on compassion, but we're big on truth. We're big on truth. The way that you discern the truth from the lie is to look at what is, some, what is a teacher's life look like, what's the, the, the substance and the quality of the content of their teaching, and how does that compare to what's in the Bible? How does it compare? We're looking to discern those two things. The Apostle John puts it this way, I think it's First uh, John chapter 4. It's talking about false teachers. It says, They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, John was with Jesus. All these guys, they were with Jesus. Jesus gave them the truth. He gave them the deposit, all the stuff that they wrote, John's gospel, and then his letters that he wrote, all the things that, even the apostle Paul, he wasn't one of the original 12 disciples, but um, he had a revelation, he had a vision of Jesus, he had revelation from Jesus. He went and checked his gospel and his teaching with the other apostles to make sure it was correct. So everything that's written by the apostle Paul, everything that's written by Peter, everything written by John, this is coming from Jesus. And so John's point is, if you disagree with us, if you're, if you're teaching something contrary to what we're teaching, well, we got all of this directly from Jesus. And so if you're contradicting or ignoring or rejecting what we're saying, then you are, by definition, against God. It's, I, this is heavy. Sorry to get heavy on you today. It's a heavy one. Watchful guardians. we've got to guard ourselves against false teaching and we do it by looking at God's word, comparing the truth from the lie. And I've got to tell you, that takes time. Sometimes in our rashness, we we come to conclusions about things and sometimes you've got to wrestle through things for a while and have honest conversations about things. And I understand that sometimes churches and Christians react badly when people start asking certain questions and we want to avoid that too. People are all in different places, and we've got to help each other grapple with these things. But our goal, our shared goal has to be, I've got to get to the truth. I've got to get to the truth. What's the truth? Because you don't want to live a lie. A lie is destructive. There's no trust in a lie. I spent a lot of time on that. Let's spend a little bit of time talking about the other danger to the flock, which is temptation to sin. Temptation to sin. How do we guard ourselves and how do we guard each other against sin? It starts by, you've got to focus on temptation. Temptation is the precursor to sin. If you're already trapped in a sin, then the response is, all right, I repent. I can't come back in full repentance. I've been caught in something. But the way to get ahead of it is to say, I'm either going to avoid a temptation. I know the temptation is coming and I'm just going to avoid it completely. I'm going to do everything I can to get away from it so I don't even have to deal with it. That's one step. The up, but the, you know, the world isn't that kind. Life isn't that kind. So you will, we will still face temptations. So the other step is to say, I'm going to be planned and prepared. I'm going to have a plan of action of how to respond in the face of temptation. So I'm going to avoid it as much as possible. I'm going to have a plan how I'm going to respond when I'm tempted. If I do fall in, I know I can come and I've got to be open and confess it and seek help with it. 
Those are three, thing, three things Christians can do. Jesus tells us in uh, Mark chapter 14, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So, there's the, so look at that, watch. Right? This is being watchful. Watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. So the focus is, what am I tempted by? What are my vices? What comes towards me that, that I'm particularly susceptible to? Because there are some temptations that, you know, some of us scratch our heads when we hear about people do, falling into certain sins. We're like, I can't believe they did that. Why would they do that? And that's because for us, that's not a problem. But then, then there are other things that there's a really big problem for us. Like you just get one little ounce of temptation and you're like, your heart's leaping at it. I want it, I want it. It's like a drug. I want to take that. You know, and sometimes it is actually a drug. But it says be watchful. Watch and pray. So prayer is a powerful way to be watchful people. We're praying for protection. I'm praying, God, protect the church. Protect this brother. Protect this sister. Protect me, God. Protect. That's a way to watch. To so keep watch on the flock is to pray for protection over every person. We're told in Colossians 4. It says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. So we're being watchful in our prayer, which also means that as we pray, we're saying, Holy Spirit, search my heart. Reveal to me any weakness. Help me see if there's any temptation I'm vulnerable to. Help me see ahead this week, this month, this year. Help me see what temptations will come my way that I can avoid them or prepare to respond properly to them when they come. That's another way to be watchful in prayer. But also to pray, have I given in to something that I've convinced myself is okay? I need to come back and realize, no, it wasn't okay to fall into that. See, if we're not watchful, a watchfulness is really underscored by a sense of humility. If we're humble, we're not going to be blind. We're not going to be full of our own ego, like, I know what I'm doing, or I'm okay. I can live how I want to live. No, I'm humble. I'm, I'm, I realize I'm fragile. I'm, I'm vulnerable to sin and t- temptation, or to false doctrine, to eating poisonous berries, drinking tainted water, whatever it might be. I'm, I'm vulnerable to that, and so I want to be, I want to be sober-minded and aware. See, if we're not sober-minded and aware, that actually can even hinder our prayers as well. It's First uh, Peter chapter 4. It says, he says, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So actually, our prayers can be ineffective and weak if we're not sober-minded, if we're not actually watchful, if we're, if we're puffed up in our own sense of our own abilities and what we can do. It makes our prayers super lame. The key in all this is to, is to have the right disposition towards God and towards other people. Because if we're going to keep watch on ourselves and keep watch on each other, we've got to have that humble heart. I think it's Philippians chapter 2 that tells us to, uh, to do nothing from self, selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. So here's the danger is in being watchful is we turn into like the sin police, Right, pointing out each other's sin, whereas instead we need to have a heart of care and compassion for people. It needs to be underscored with absolute compassion, saying, I'm not better than anyone else. I'm not doing this because I'm righteous. I've got weaknesses. I've got trials. I've found in my, for my, myself, whenever I've talked to people about uh, issues they've struggled with, I try to start it with, I've had a similar struggle. I've struggled with this or I've done this, but I wanted to ask you about this. That's a really nice disarming way that doesn't communicate to someone, I'm better than you, I'm the righteous one, and you're the, the evil sinner who has to repent. Right? So it's underscored with, with compassion. Um, we've got a test. When we're talking to people, if we're, if we're afraid that they're getting into false teaching, say, stop listening to Joel Osteen, that's not going to help you. Or getting into being temptate, you know, into temptation of sin, We've got to, we've got to, we can't assume, we've got, we've got, we, don't, we don't want to judge by appearances. Jesus tells us don't judge by appearances. We've got to listen to people. We've got to listen to what they say. We can't jump to conclusions about things. You know, so many lives have been hurt and so many Christian relationships have been hurt is because people jumped to conclusions. They didn't actually do the investigative work to, to really listen. Because I've heard Christians say things before that are theologically awful. They're terrible. They're like, oh my gosh, what are you saying? But I listened, asked some questions, got to the bottom of it and figured out this person doesn't actually even have the language to describe what they're talking about. They just don't know a lot. And they're using some of the wrong terms. They're actually 
do believe the Bible. They're just, you know, and then it's just a matter of cleaning up, you know, helping people see something a bit more clearly. But if you, if you don't take the time to do that, you're in, we're in real danger of club, clubbing each other over the head with little misunderstandings. Because um, you know, certain words mean different things to different people at different times. And so we have to really cover it with a lot of grace, a lot of grace. We can't afford to turn a blind eye. If you see a brother or sister falling into sin, you can't turn a blind eye. If you see a brother or sister going down the pathway believing something that's against God's word, you can't turn a blind eye. If you see it, it's because God wants you to do something about it. The first step is to pray. Second step is to seek wisdom. How do I deal with this? And the third step is to be courageous with compassion. I've got a whole sermon coming up on compassion. You're going to like that one. But to be watchful, to be a guardian. What happened with Erin Brockovich? Well, through her, just her relentless pursuit of the truth, through years of investigative work, painstakingly putting together this case, interviewing people, getting records, knocking on doors, all this stuff that she did, she was able to connect with the jury in this case, not just to win over their minds to the facts of the case, but to win over their hearts to the compassion of all the people that have been harmed by this terrible thing that had happened. And the judge ruled against PG&E in the greatest landslide historical uh, ruling of its kind, they were charged to pay $333 million to, for compensation for those who, whose health were affected and to fix the environmental damage that had happened. She exposed a great evil that was lurking in secret. Nobody else saw it. Nobody knew it was there, apart from the corrupt evil people at PG&E who were hiding it up. But apart from them, nobody else knew it was there. She saw it. She wasn't a government official. She wasn't a hotshot lawyer. She, at the time, she had no notoriety to speak of. She was just a dyslexic single mom. But you know what she did have? She was watchful. She was a guardian. And I'm not holding her up as a bastion of Christian virtue. I really don't know her personal beliefs. I don't think she's a Christian. But there is something wonderful about her story and about this story that does communicate to us the heart of God, the shepherding heart of God to keep God. What's the use of a security guard if they're just going to snooze on the job? Right, Christians, we're, we're security guards. Her story highlights the importance of being vigilant, of paying attention, of asking hard questions, of knocking on doors and pushing the issue of comparing the truth to the lie, exposing the lie, of having that protective heart to say people are suffering. People don't, don't even know what's happening to them. They're going down this, this pathway. She stepped in. You know, there's a lot of spiritual toxins in our world. And Jesus, in his grace... He didn't just come and live the perfect life and give us the perfect teaching. He did do that. But he also left us with a love letter. He left us with a purification device that can seek out, that can identify the falsities and the errors and the lies that can purify what has been tainted. And it turns out that a book is more durable than stone tablets, than altars and monuments, than castles and palaces, than royal families and empires. We've been given the good book by God so that we can test everything by it. And those that knew Jesus, they wrote it down. They saved it. They kept it. And God has preserved his word so that we can, with Eyes wide open, staying awake. We can discern easily, easily we can see the pure water that's not toxic and tainted versus the tainted water. What is in this? What is this? It's Diet Pepsi. <laughs> it uh, give you brain tumors. That's true, it does. If you didn't know that, aspartame. It's not a story about health purity. So, sorry, there's not a sermon about, about being healthy physically, although that is a good point. 
this is a spiritual illustration to us that we've, we've been called to live lives that are pure, that are weeding out the false doctrines that spring up even within churches and the temptation to sin. Are you or somebody you know drinking polluted water? Or even polluted Christian water? Well, you can't tell. Didn't they come out with a Coke product that was clear at one point? Man. In John chapter 4, Jesus says this. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You know, Jesus is keeping an eye on you. He's got his eye on you because he's a guardian. He's a watchful guardian. He's watching out for you, steering you towards paths of righteousness and away from temptation. He's, he's got the cure. Jesus has the cure. He's got a purification device to get those toxins out. He wants to give you the greatest health. The greatest health you could ha ever have is eternal life. It's everlasting life. That's what a, receiving the righteousness of Jesus, that's what it does. It brings about that eternal that gift of righteousness from Jesus brings about eternal life for us. Jesus, there's some parallels here with Aaron Brockovich's story. Jesus is just uh, from a small town. He was an obscure carpenter for many years, blue-collar family. He had the state against him. He had the establishment against him, the elites against him. And at great personal cost, he went before the judge of the universe and pleaded the greatest case that has ever been pleaded. And he won the greatest settlement that could ever be won, the greatest payout that could ever be given. And this payout is so great, it doesn't matter the depths of despair, the toxins you've ingested, the cancers or disease that you have. This payout is so great, it can cure all of that. And it's open. It's an open invitation to come in to the family of Jesus. And if you're already in to celebrate what Jesus has done all the more, that he paid this price that we can receive this purification, this case that has been won. Because he's the guardian. He's the guardian. Perhaps you're aware of a toxin in your own life. Repent, turn from it, get it, get it out, pour it away, dump it out, switch your glass today. Or perhaps you're aware of others. You say they're going down a bad path. They're being embroiled in some kind of temptation. They're getting caught up in some distorted teaching. You're listening to too much Joel Osteen, something like that. Listen, let's be watchful guardians. Let's grow out of infancy into maturity. Let's be like Jesus. Say, I want to take care of my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ.